Are Joe Douglas and Robert Sala building a winner? Is the Jets' run defense good enough? How about the depth at tackle? We'll discuss all of this and more on today's mailbag episode of the Locked On Jets podcast. You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, this is the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. It's Wednesday, May 11th, 2022, and I'm your host, John B. from GangGreenNation.com, and I thank you for making the show your first listen or your first watch every day. A big shout out to, to subscribers to this podcast, and if you'd like to join that group, just hit the subscribe button wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast. You'll never miss an episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, please give this episode a big thumbs up. It helps the channel out, and it helps other Jets fans find Locked On Jets. Well, today, as we try to do each Wednesday, we have our weekly mailbag. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions. Our first question comes from a listener named John, who has a tremendous first name. And John writes, I'm a 50-year Jets fan who grew up in the shadows of Shea Stadium, and I listen to your show almost every day. Thank you. Can you honestly remember a time when we had such a methodical coordination between GM, head coach, and ownership? Yes, dare I say ownership? The big Tannenbaum splashes of the past and the absolute control that Parcells had were cute, but completely unsustainable. I have never felt this positively about Jets management, and it's the coordination and patience between all parties that is so out of character. Do you have feelings about this? Well, I do have feelings about this, John, and thank you for the kind words. And again, great first name. The way I view it is this. There are certain things in the NFL that guarantee success. Like one of those is like having like an MVP level quarterback. If you have an MVP level quarterback, it's impossible to be bad. You know, you, you're going to be good. You're going to be really good. And then there are things that they don't guarantee you success, but a lack of them guarantees you failure. And that's what I think of when you talk about the coordination between the coach and the GM. And I mean, you're, you're really going out there praising ownership there, John. I like it, but... I think it's more, you know, the focus for me is the coach and the GM. Now, I think Adam Gase and Joe Douglas worked well together. So that's a good example of how it doesn't guarantee success, but a lack of it guarantees failure. And we've seen with, you know, Adam Gase and Mike McCagnan, or Mike McCagnan and Todd Bowles, or John Idzik and Rex Ryan. When the head coach and the general manager don't see eye to eye, you're going to have problems within the franchise, because then essentially the owner has to choose one of the two. And you're not going to get that coordination between ownership and the guys running the team unless you unless you unless they're all on the same page. I think Rex and Tannenbaum were actually on the same page very much. And I think Woody was completely behind them at the time. The problem was they were too short sighted. I, I think it, it's always best when you have one person who kind of has like the big picture view and the other who's like looking to get results immediately, because then you tend to get the best balance. You get the best of both worlds, whereas Tannenbaum and Rex, I think, were both very short term thinkers. And that's why maybe Tannenbaum and Eric Mangini were a little bit better of a mix because Mangini tended to view the big picture, which is unusual because usually, and this is just the nature of the two jobs, the GM is typically the long-term thinker and the head coach is usually the guy who's focused on the short-term because the coach has to prepare for the next game, whereas the GM can afford to think the next year. So that was an interesting mix between Tannenbaum and Mangini way back when. But I do sense that there's coordination between the, the two and you know, if you're a student of the way Ozzie Newsom does things, this is, this is no surprise because Joe, Do Joe Douglas comes off the Ozzie Newsom tree. 
And the way Ozzie Newsom does things in Baltimore, or the way he did things in Baltimore, he's not the GM anymore, but the way Baltimore does things, and that's the organization that kind of helped shape Joe Douglas into the executive he is today, is they work hand in hand, in hand with the coaching staff. They And they speak with the coaching staff. And essentially what they do is they figure out every single role on their football team, whether it's the starting left tackle, whether it's the backup slot receiver, whether it's, whether it's the gunner on the punt team. And they go through every single possible role and they come up with a list of traits that are non-negotiables. And that's what helps guide their scouting process. And some of these traits are measurable. You know, you may be that you have to run a 40 time in this amount of time. It may be that you have to be this big. And some of the traits are more intangible, where it's like you need toughness in this role, or you know, you need a guy with a guy who's willing to you know lower his shoulder if it's like a power back or something along those lines. And so you end up finding players who are good fits for your team because when you get to the NFL draft, there are the guys at the very top. There are the guys there. I mean, the, the superstar level players in this league are going to be great no matter where you put them. The vast majority of players, though, have more limited skill sets. They have skills. Like, every player in the NFL has skills. You could not be in the NFL unless you were a great football player. And I, you know, I, It's one of those things I always need to watch myself with because I'm, I, I have a tendency to say, this guy's not that good. That's not true. Like, anybody who's in the NFL is a phenomenal football player. You're in, like, the top 0.0001%, and that might be underselling it of football players in the world. You have done. You are an amazing football player if you're in the NFL. If you're a practice squatter, you're an amazing football player. But when you get to the NFL level, not everybody has the skill set to succeed in every role in every system. There might be a guy who's just a good role as like a good player for like a slot as a slot receiver in a certain system. Like Braxton Berrios is a really good example of this. You put Braxton Berrios, you stick him outside in some offense. He's not going to be any good. You put him in Michael LaFleur's offense where you're going to be able to throw him screens and get him the ball in space and you know use him in the slot. He's going to be a good player for you. So you kind of have to figure out which guys are good fits for you. And that's one thing the Jets did not did not do with past general managers. And, you know, the example I always go back to in retrospect, and this is pure hindsight. This is this is like purely me, like after the fact, looking into this and figuring out why this didn't really work as well as I thought it was going to, would be the Leonard Williams pick, where the Jets already had a lot of young talent on the interior of their defensive line. And I remember at the time, I was like, well, obviously there's a plan there. And it, it would not have been that difficult to find a plan. But there wasn't a plan. And you did saw things like Sheldon Richardson playing outside linebacker. It did not make a lot of sense. And I remember seeing some quote from McCagnan that said, you know, we just picked the best player and we sorted out then. That's fine if you actually do sort it out. But it seemed like the Jets never really sorted it out. And there are different philosophies. I mean, there are some teams who do, do who are going to make it, it. You always have to be flexible with your system. You can't, if there's a guy who's like an exceptional talent, sometimes it does make sense to you carve out a role for him. Sometimes it makes sense, to a certain extent, it makes sense to adapt your system. But it doesn't make so much sense to adapt your system for when you're talking the fifth round. And this approach, when you're figuring out what a coaching staff wants, it helps you find, it kind of helps you narrow down the field of players you're looking for as you get later into the draft. And I think that's the reason you have a lot of these teams, the teams that are successful finding late round players have that kind of success because they know what they're looking for. They know what they need in a player. And essentially when you do this, when you say that these are the skills that are non-negotiable, it helps you eliminate players because you're going through hundreds of prospects every year. So if you can zero in on what you need, first of all, these guys are going to be better fits. But second of all, you're not going to waste time on guys who don't really fit what you're trying to do. And it's not so much... It's not so much that the coaches are making the picks. I've seen this this idea that like the coaches are the ones deciding. Now, I'm sure the coaches are asked their input on certain players, and I'm sure that 
there are coaches that the Jets trust a lot. So I'm not I'm not saying that the coaches have zero input, but it's not so much that the coaches are driving driving things. It's more that the front office and the coaching staff are working together. And that's what you want. That's what you need. Now, I can't sit here. If if I I'm lying to you if I'm sitting here saying put Joe put Joe Douglas in the Ring of Honor, he's built a Super Bowl worthy team. I can't do that. But you know what drives me crazy? And I hate this. I hate this so much, this defeatist attitude. And I understand it because it's been tough to watch. The last 11 years, we've missed the playoffs. And there's this attitude in the fan base and certain portions of the fan base that because the Jets have struggled for so long, they are doomed to struggle forever. That's not how it works in the NFL. And I understand. Listen, I get it. But sometimes we have a tendency to think the way things are now will be that way forever. And eventually you do find an equal equilibrium in this league. You know, will it be Douglas and Salah? I mean, I, I I hope so. But if not, it could be the next guy. I mean, you know, the Steelers spent the first few decades of franchise history being the joke of the league, and they've spent the last 40 to 50 being the model franchise. Uh, the Saints won one playoff game before Sean Payton was hired as their head coach in franchise history. So, you know, things can change. It's just about finding the right guys. And you hope that these are the right guys. You hope Douglas and Salah are the right guys. But here's the other thing I'm going to say. Listen, I, I can't guarantee you that these guys are... I can't guarantee you that these draft picks the Jets had are going to work, but there's been a commitment. As much as, the, as much as you know they're working together, there's been a commitment to try and really build this team through the draft, which is kind of how you have to do it in the NFL. And, I mean, you've got seven players the last two years who were drafted in the top 40, and eight in the last three if you throw in Mekhi Becton. Now, how these guys perform, whether they're good or not, will determine how successful this venture is for Joe Douglas and Robert Sala. But with all this, with all these young players with potential, and listen, you can't get drafted in the top 40 unless you have potential. It doesn't mean you always live up to it, but you can't get drafted in the top 40 without potential. There's so much potential on this team. So I don't see how if you're a Jets fan, you can be gloomy right now. I mean, I think there's, I don't know how, you're, how you can't be optimistic, how you can't have some hope for the future. And I, th- I do think a lot of it goes back to, it seems like these two guys are working together well. Now, sometimes this is going to come down, you know, it's easy to, to work together well when things are, you know, you're in the off season and you're pl- you think your plan's perfect. Sometimes those bonds fray a little bit when you get into the season and things don't work out so well. So that'll be something to watch. But I, I do think there's something to the idea that they're working well together. And like I said, this doesn't guarantee that you're necessarily going to have success but if they weren't working well together, and we've seen that before, oh, have we seen that before, I could almost guarantee you this would fail. So I think I think there's lots of reason for hope as a Jets fan. And I think that, you know, I can't guarantee you it's going to work, but I think that the steps they've taken, they're all, they all seem very logical to me. And they all see, it seems like these, these guys are really working together pretty well. Now ahead here, we'll continue our mailbag episode of Locked On Jets, and we will talk about a wide receiver who's kind of flown under the radar. He was a guy we were very excited about when the Jets drafted him two years ago. Hopes are not high for him now. What can we expect from him going forward? That's what we'll discuss ahead here on this mailbag Wednesday Locked On Jets episode. You know, I hope you enjoy it when we have a mailbag episode here on Locked On Jets, but there's no way you'll enjoy it as much as you enjoy a delicious Built Bar. Built Bar's the best tasting protein bar on the market. Maybe a protein bar. It doesn't taste like one, though. At Built Bar, they figure out how to make it delicious first. And they do it because they cover these bars in 100% real chocolate. But here's the thing. They don't just make it taste good. 
they're also healthy for you. Most bars contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. Compare that to a candy bar, which usually has around 240 calories, 30 grams of sugar, and dozens of net carbs. And you can pick whichever flavor you think tastes best. There's banana cream pie, raspberry, double chocolate, and so many more. I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think is best. I can't decide. So to make your decision, go to Built.com right now. Find the Built Bar for you. And when you're checking out, use promo code LOCKED15. That's one word with no space, L-O-C-K-E-D, number one, number five. You'll get 15% off at Built, B-U-I-L-T dot com. Thank you for making Locked On Jets your first listen every day. We are free and available on all platforms, and we continue our weekly mailbag. It seems like Denzel Mims might have long odds to make the final roster, but do you think his size might help him? Wilson, Moore, and Barrios are all smaller guys, which means Davis is the only big-bodied receiver. Could Mims be Davis's backup? Well, it's interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see whether Mims makes the final roster, but I'm very down on Denzel Mims right now. I'll tell you why. You know, you do this long enough, and you try and learn from your mistakes, and this is something that I've done a lot in the past. Frequently what happens is there are players where I want them to be good so badly that I ignore it when all of the evidence is suggesting to me this guy is just not a player. I mean, the most recent examples would be Sam Darnold, Chris Herndon. But if you go back, I mean, you could go back a very long time. And I can't count how many times I've done this. And I'm trying to avoid that trap with Denzel Mims because I loved it when the Jets drafted him in 2020. But if we're being honest right now, the results are just not there. We've not seen really much to suggest this guy's going to be a player in this league. And, you know, there there are two types of players in this league. There are the guys who get drafted highly who perform, and there are the guys who get drafted highly, and these are the guys who get excuses made for them year after year. Whenever a guy gets picked in the first round or two and they don't perform right off the bat, people come up with excuses. They come up with rationales for why this is an exceptional case, why this is so different from every other player who has ever struggled. And you can pretty much come up with an excuse for every player out there. I've heard them for every guy through the years. I mean, I made them for Jason Morrow. I heard people make them for Stephen Hill. And yeah, I know Mims began his career with the hamstring injuries and he had a couple decent games at the end of 2020. And, you know, this year he had the food poisoning in the offseason. Well, you know, I don't know that food poisoning in the... Listen, it's, it sounds like it really took a toll on him, but is that the reason he couldn't get lined up correctly in December? At some point, these excuses just kind of run out of steam for me. And it's obvious the coaching staff doesn't like him that much. And, you know, I've, I've seen people say, well, the coaching staff's, you know, the coaching staff's higher on him than people think. Well, that's what they said last year, and they clearly weren't. And Mims wasn't even getting playing time above guys who were barely practice squad level players at the end of last season when the Jets had a lot of injuries at the receiver position. So it's just tough for me to, like, look at this and say that there's a lot you can hang your hat on. Essentially, you're going back to your scouting report, ignoring two years of information that the guy just really hasn't produced. And beyond that... If the, Jets thought Garrett, uh, if the Jets thought Denzel Mims could play, would they have drafted Garrett Wilson top 10? Are you drafting a receiver top 10 if you really think Denzel Mims is a player for you? I don't see it. I don't know that this this offense necessarily relies on bigger receivers. I think the, it's a good question. You know, the, the mailbag question goes back to, to whether Mims could be Corey Davis's backup because the Jets don't really have size at the receiver position. But everything I know about this offense says to me they want guys who can get quick separation, which is not really Mims. Mims was kind of drafted for Adam Gase's offense to be play a more vertical role. And I think if it's going to work for Mims, he might just need to change the scenery. And I'm very skeptical it can work for him at this point. I mean, it, it hurts to say because I really liked this pick when the Jets made it, but 
it just clearly has not worked out for the team. And it might be best for all parties. And I think the Jets made him. If the rumors were true that the Jets were offered anything for a trade for him last year, they probably made a mistake not taking it. Because I just don't know that Mims is really going to ever produce on the level that would that, that's going to make an impact for this team. So I, I think Mims could make the team. I mean, listen, being the sixth receiver on the team is not exactly the biggest bar to clear. He could be number five. I mean, he could make the team. But I just uh, am very down on his prospects going forward with this team. I just haven't seen enough. I mean, we have a couple of catches in, tw- in the second half of 2020. I just, I think we're kind of just like hanging hanging everything on hope right now and hanging everything on what the scouting report was two years ago without all the data we have that just suggests he's not going to bring anything to the table. And I, again, I don't think the coaching staff really likes him. I don't think he fits what they want out of a receiver. So I wish I had better news about Denzel Mims, but I'm kind of close to giving up. Now, listen, you bring him to camp. There's nothing wrong with bringing him to camp. He's going to be one of the best 90 players on the roster, and he could be one of the top five, six receivers, and maybe he earns a roster spot, but I'm very down on him. And, I, I you know, it's a, like I said, it's a good question. I don't think the the size of – I just don't think it's going to make that big of a difference for what the Jets want to do on offense. And I know I've said in the past that Joe Douglas wants to draft bigger receivers – but that's you know that's, that's guys you're bringing in. When it comes to the coaching staff, I don't think the coaching staff prioritizes that quite as much. Our next question: Given the personnel, the Jets are bound. To, are the Jets bound to repeat? Are the Jets bound to repeat as a bottom of the league run defense? I can't help but think there's more work to be done to remedy the situation, and the Jets have set themselves up for failure in this regard. All four teams in the AFC North are known for their prolific ground games. I think there's plenty of reason for concern against them. That's a good question. And, you know, yesterday I did a episode where I talked about the defensive additions and, you know, the one, one of the few areas where I was not thrilled with what the Jets did was the nose tackle spot. They let Foley Fatukasi go. I'm not sure what the answers are there. And another spot that I did not love, and this is, you know, it's not a spot you think of when you, when you think about run defense, but free safety has got some question marks. Here's the thing, like, you don't realize, this is the thing I didn't realize. This really surprised me when I looked it up because I was researching an article. I was really shocked by this. The Jets led the league in uh, in run plays that allowed the other team to gain 30 yards or more last season. Now, that's not shocking. What's shocking is how much that impacted the, the overall run game because those plays where the Jets allowed 30-plus 30, 30 yards, that was, only, that was less than 2% of the, run, the rushing attempts against them, but they accounted for 15% of the yardage. And one of the things I found was Ashton Davis had a role was probably the main culprit in five of the nine of those plays so as silly as it sounds maybe better free safety play if they get it from Lamarcus Joyner if he can stay healthy or if maybe there's somebody else who comes in Pinnock if somebody else plays free safety more effectively than Ashton Davis that can cut down on this a lot but really in the run game you just can't give up huge runs it's I think like we all have this perception that you know you you let the other team the bad run defenses allow the team to grind out five six seven yard plays it's really about the home runs. The Jets just allowed too many home runs last year. So it's going to require more discipline. I think Quinn and Williams improving. You know, Quinn and Williams took a step back last year as a run defender. Uh, you look at the linebackers. I'm not as high, I'm not that high on the linebackers, but, you know, if they can improve a little bit. I mean, I think a lot of the improvement will need to be internal. Uh, Jordan Whitehead should help a little bit. But, you know, it comes down to it. Guys have got to play better. And the Jets just have to stop allowing these these big runs against them. You know, they can't allow the 30-yard run. They have to, even when they, they get lose up front, 
There's a big difference between your defensive line and linebackers losing up front and the safety coming down and cleaning cleaning things up for an eight-yard gain than a safety taking a bad angle and turning an eight-yard gain into a 40-yard gain. So safety play is going to matter, but other than that, guys just have to, you know, guys just have to perform up to their expectations, including Quinn and Williams. So it's, it's going to be a little bit of everything. Um, this, I think it should be a better run defense this year, even though they did not make a lot of additions though, just because I, I think that there's a, there, there, I think there's reason for hope here between internal improvements and, you know, maybe getting better play from your safeties as crazy as it sounds to help, help you in the run game. I, I think, I don't think it's necessarily guaranteed that this is going to be a bottom of the league run defense though. Our next question just saw Fox locked up Brady as a color announcer for very big bucks. In fact, all announcers are now making big bucks. Why? Most fans want to watch their team no matter who's calling the games. If I'm going to watch a non-Jets game, it's based on the team and not the announcers. Isn't this announcer payroll boom pretty insane? Well, let me just throw it out there. Any network who would like to hire me, I am I'm willing to listen to your offers. But yeah, I agree with you. Outside of, I actually like the Peyton and the Eli show on ESPN. I think that that's really interesting. I think I think they have some really interesting insights on the game that you usually don't get from announcers, but I'm not watching it just for Peyton and Eli. I'm watching it usually because I'm interested in the team. I think, yeah, I, I think this this payroll boom for announcers is kind of crazy. I I don't know that's the best the best use of money for these networks, but it's what they're doing. So, like I said, I am available if anybody would like to hire me to to call a game. If you know, Fox would like to have bring me aboard, I will listen to your offers. Now ahead here on the Locked On Jets podcast, we will close out our weekly mailbag. I'll talk about the tackle position. We know who the Jets have starting this year. Is what they have behind those guys enough, though? I'll give you my thoughts. This is the Locked On Jets podcast on this mailbag Wednesday. Our next question. Do you feel comfortable with the backup tackles behind Fanton Becton, or would you prefer that the Jets sign a veteran free agent who might shake free this summer? Do you think Max Mitchell would likely be ready to play major minutes this season? With very few exceptions, I am never comfortable playing a fourth-round pick. And I, I'm of the mindset that a team should aspire to have three starting-caliber tackles because that's what happened last year. Jets brought in Morgan Moses during the summer. That ended up being really important. And as bad as last season was, I think things would have been much worse if Morgan Moses had not been around after Mekhi Becton got hurt. I, I don't feel comfortable with what the Jets have right now. But the thing is, like, last year was an exception. They're it's not easy to find good tackles in this league. So the Jets were kind of in a good spot last year. They just had that extra money and Moses was, Moses was a late cut and he didn't really have a lot of options. Hopefully the Jets will be able to find somebody similar to Morgan Moses this off season. Cause I don't love what they have. And I think when you saw the Jets had additional injuries at the tackle position at points last year, the play really fell off and Max Mitchell was not a bad pick for a developmental player. I don't think he's a bad guy to take a shot on, I don't think he's going to be ready to play this season, though. I I've, I, I really don't feel comfortable with him stepping into the lineup. I, there's a reason guys fall to the fourth round, typically. Now you have guys like Michael Carter who just don't play a premium position. You're a running back where you can, you, you look at the skill set, you look at the position, and you say, okay, well, maybe we can get some production from him right away. But for the most part, guys are falling to the fourth round because there's something wrong with their game that needs to be worked out. Now, they're good enough that you could, you feel like you might be able to work them out, but it's usually going to take some time. So I would have an issue with it. The problem is everybody needs tackle depth right now. It's just one of those things the Jets will have to work around. You can't have depth at every position. I think, unfortunately, the Jets are just going to have to hope that Fant and Becton stay healthy this year because they could have some problems there otherwise. I mean, I wonder whether the plan would be to 
maybe slide Vera Tucker out to tackle for a short stretch. I, I don't know how much I love that, but that might, compared with the alternatives, it might be the least bad alternative the team has. But I think that if there's an upgrade available, I'd like to see them make it. And our last question, do you think Joe Douglas trading up is situational or is it a sign that he might be too confident about his assessments? I guess we can't really know for another couple of years, but interesting. But I'm interested to know what you think based on the first couple of drafts. Well, I hope it's not. I hope that Joe Douglas is not a guy who's going to look to trade up constantly. I get the feeling he's not, though. I get the feeling that this was just one of those situations where he had a few extra picks laying around. And when you have the luxury of extra draft capital, you can kind of swing for the fences. You can kind of take gambles that you otherwise might not have. So my guess is that we'll see Joe Douglas revert to a more normal view of draft picks next year. I think we'll see less trading up because it, just everything I've seen about Joe Douglas suggests to me he values draft picks. So I think this might, might just be the situation where because he, he's had a couple extra picks the last few years, he's felt more comfortable moving up to target the player he wants. I certainly hope that's the reason, though, because if you're constantly trading up, you're going to have problems in this draft. You're going to have problems in the NFL draft. I know whenever a team trades up, you know, there's this, people say something like, well, you, you move up to get your guy. And that's great if your guy's actually as, as good as you think he is. But teams do overestimate their ability to evaluate talent. That's just the truth. You know, even a great GM is going to strike out a lot. Even there are times where you, even, you may be sure about a player and you're just going to miss out. Nobody's perfect. And evaluating talent for the NFL draft it's not an easy thing to do. So I hope he's not going to. It's, you, know, you, you can't beat the casino. You know, it's like trying to beat the casino. You might be able to do it once. You know, once in a while, you might be able to. You might have a hot night or you, know, you may have a good weekend. And that's you know, the example people use for trading up is 2007. The Jets, Jets traded up a couple times. They got Darrell Rivas. They got David Harris. It was a great draft. I think they only had one other pick, which was, which was Chancey Stuckey. They may have, I think they, drafted, they also drafted a lineman late that year. Jacob Bender, maybe. Um, but, you know, you look at future years, they had a three-man class in 09 with Mark Sanchez, Mark, Matt, Matt Slauson, and Sean Green, which, you know, paid some dividends. A year later, they had a very light draft class that included Kyle Wilson and Vlad Dukas and uh, John Connor, the fullback. Um, and, they, you know, they, they, they had all these light draft classes. And, yes, it worked for them in 2007. But... As time moved on, they kept having these these very light draft classes, these classes that were light on picks. And what happened? The team got old, and they didn't have young talent in, heading in to replace them. And they had all these expensive old players who weren't producing, and they got into cap trouble. And really, the only way you get out of cap trouble, there's only one way, is that you need to hit on draft picks because you're not going to have money to bring in free agents, as the Jets did not back in the 2012-2013 era. They needed to have young talent emerging, and they did not. And part of the reason was they kept they traded away too many picks in the Tannenbaum era. So it's very easy to talk yourself into constantly trading up. I don't hate the way Joe Douglas handled it, only because he had the extra picks. But I think we need to revert to something a little bit more normal going forward. If unless the Jets are gonna, you know, if the Jets don't have extra picks, I think they're gonna have to really reduce the rate of trading up. Anyway, that's all for our show today. Thank you for listening or watching. This has been the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. As always, if you enjoy the show, subscribe to it. Leave it a five-star review if you're listening on a podcast source or a thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. I hope you have a great Wednesday, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more Jets.